interesting and providential to hear as we've gone through uh, Genesis 11 and 12 in the last few weeks and the overlap with some of the themes here in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember with Mark, we opened up by saying there's really three themes that are going to emerge continuously through Mark, and he wastes no time getting into them. He's looking at three questions and answering them. Who is Jesus? Why has he come? What does it mean to follow him? And immediately, Mark, we've gotten used to his style a little bit by now. He, he doesn't linger very long anywhere. He hits an event, and he's off, and he's to the next place, and the next place. And compared to other Gospels, he leaves out a lot of specific details. And so we're doing our best to leave those out as well to see what is it that Mark is trying to, to draw us to see. And he, he keeps driving us back to answering these three questions. And today's text, we'll look at all three of those as well, especially the third. What does it mean to follow Jesus as we're really introduced to the idea of discipleship that will continue to flow through the Gospel of Mark? If you remember Jesus beginning his ministry, really getting into it full swing, and he begins to heal and cast out demons, and you see his kingdom authority and power being demonstrated just as his declaration of the gospel of the king of the kingdom goes forward in word. And the paralytic is brought, and that's that sort of dramatic story of the paralytic being dropped down through the ceiling, lowered down through the ceiling, I should say, on a mattress in front of King Jesus. And as he stands there, he announces, as he looks at the faith of the man, your sins are forgiven. And there is an outcry. And as we've said, we've mentioned at this point, The shadow of the cross falls upon the life and ministry of Jesus. The the events now going forward, the shadow of the cross rests upon those for two reasons. One, because Jesus knows what it means to offer forgiveness of sins. That it's going to take a perfect sacrifice. It's going to take him laying down his life for the sake of sinners. Because indeed he came to save sinners, we've seen. And so he knows where that offer of forgiveness is leading him. It is leading him to the cross. Also, the shadow of the cross falls because in announcing the forgiveness of sins, conflict begins to arise between Jesus and those around him. The religious leaders of the day do not want to hear that. If they hear what Jesus intends for them to hear, it's a declaration of his identity as the Son of God. And the leaders immediately, religious leaders immediately don't like that. And they are going to look to ensnare and to entrap him. And then following that, there's five events that Mark lays out for us one after another. Each one kind of heightening the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Each one sort of moving Jesus just a step closer to the cross. The last of those ends discussing the Sabbath where the the Pharisees think they finally have Jesus trapped. And like always, he outmaneuvers them. But coming to the end of that last uh, little story there in that conflict, we see the climate around Jesus Christ has changed. There is incredible adversity and incredible pressure now around Jesus Christ. And so we see here in in two sort of interactions. First, we'll look at his interactions with the crowd. Then we'll look at the calling of the disciples. And first, we just observe some reactions to Christ. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, 
the conclusion of our last section. It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, that is against Jesus, how to destroy him. The, the opposition has, has ratcheted up. They're looking how they can destroy them. Here, the Pharisees, those who, who are the keepers of the law that treasure their traditions so much that lead the religious people are, are now gathering together and plotting how they can murder Jesus. They're combining forces with the Herodians. People would be natural enemies for the Pharisees. The Herodians are ones who come along and, and sort of collude with Rome, and it gave them a, a, a little bit of influence and power. The Herodians are much more flexible when it comes to the law and what that means in their life. And yet here they are colluding with the Pharisees of how they can destroy, how they can murder Jesus. The Pharisees really are carefully plotting what they're plotting is how they can kill Jesus legally. That is why they keep trying to trap him according to the law. They're trying to ensnare him some way that they could put him to death in what they would consider a legal way. We begin to see with the Pharisees that they are men who honor the Lord with their lips but not with their hearts. A quote from Isaiah that Jesus actually will end up quoting later on in the gospel. So the reaction to Jesus here is that the religious leaders hated Jesus. They hated him because he, he had no time for their, all of their tradition that they had built up. The Pharisees, in an attempt to keep, keep the law, started building up new traditions around that law and then traditions around that and traditions around that. And eventually they forgot what the law of God was meant, to, was intended for. And instead it just became all of these man-made traditions that they worried about keeping and judging others, whether they kept them or not. And it's a way of keeping them as the religious elite. It's a way of keeping others down. And Jesus is threatening that and they cannot stand it. They hate it. And here they are so versed in the law and yet they miss the message, the identity of Jesus Christ. They miss just indeed how holy he is and how vile their own sin and their own wickedness is. And so the political leaders of the day that would see Jesus challenging their position of influence and wealth and instead calling them to discipleship, their reaction is that they hate Jesus they look to overthrow him. And it's against this backdrop then that we come to verse 7 that you heard read. Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to the sea. He, he needs a break. The crowds are flocking to him. And as he withdraws to catch his breath, it doesn't last long because we see the crowds again come upon him. They followed him. It, it has the idea of they, they pressed upon him. Perhaps you remember the flannel graph board in Sunday school. Or perhaps I'm older than a lot of you and you don't remember that. You remember like a Bible storybook or something. And you remember how they always picture Jesus teaching. <clears throat> At least the picture that comes to my mind is he's like in a clean white robe with a blue sash. He's sitting on like a rock maybe. There's a child near him. For some reason there's always a sheep laying down near him. And there's like four or five people who just can't get enough of what he says and it's peaceful and it's serene you know that's not really painting the picture that is here 
Jesus has just fled because his life is in danger. Now this diverse crowd from every direction, as you heard Jim read all the regions, from east, north, south, west, Jews, Gentiles, the fame of Jesus, there's interest, there's curiosity. People want to know that what he is going to do for them. People are demanding his attention. They're pressing down upon him. It's literally more has the idea of like they're, they're getting ready to crush him to the point where he has someone like prepare a boat in the lake in case he needs to get a quick get, getaway. This is more the scene that we have of Jesus, of this intense pressure that is coming upon him. The people clamor to him. They crowd upon him. And this is the theme that's begun to grow in Mark, and we continue to see it. And at first, it's, we wonder, why are all these people coming and, and wanting to see Jesus? Why is he frustrated with that? Why is he hiding his identity from them? But, but you quickly see, they're coming because they need something from him. They want something from him. Their reaction is curiosity. There's interest. This guy seems to be doing amazing things. He healed that person. He provided this for that person. They're pressing on, demanding his attention, cutting lines, shouldering in front of one another because they want healed. <laughs> they want the next thing from the Lord. It's not discipleship. They're not following Christ, but they're clamoring and demanding something from him. Enough that we see through Mark that because of it, he's unable to do the work that the Lord's called him to. Yet his graciousness, he continues to heal. We see the reaction of the demons as the demons press upon him as well, as demon-possessed people keep coming to Jesus. I know sometimes in the Gospels, it's, where are all these demon-possessed people coming from? But again, we, we recognize with the announcement of the kingdom of God that light is invading darkness. Jesus announces himself, I've come to destroy the works of darkness. The promise of Jesus coming all the way back in Genesis 3.15 is one of conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so it's warfare is announced. When the kingdom is announced, it's a direct attack upon the, the kingdom of this darkness. It feels threatened. And so you see all of this heightened spiritual warfare, all of this heightened demonic activity that is going to take place in this moment in redemptive history. Because the hour has come, as we saw in Sunday school, the hour has come for Jesus. The, the shadow of the cross is falling over him. And you see this heightened warfare between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this age, between light and darkness, between the, the empty religious tradition and the message of Jesus, between just curiosity and interest and a call to discipleship. And so with this, these demon-possessed people keep showing up and Jesus is casting out these demons. And you see their reaction, and at first blush it feels like, well, it's the best so far. They confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But then you can tell this isn't worship that's taking place here. Look at verse 12, He strictly ordered them not to make him known. There's different interpretations or ideas exactly why these demons do this. They do recognize his power and his authority. There is a recognition of it. Most commentators suggest that in that 
climate, in that culture, that to name someone, to give them their name, gave you a sense of sort of authority or power over them. That by naming it, maybe like we hear today, you name it and claim it. I say it and it, it's going to be true. And so they, by naming his name, they would gain a sense of authority. I don't know if that's exactly what it is that, that seems like it makes sense. But whatever it is, it's not cries of worship. It's more shrieks of terror and antagonism. Trying to hinder the work of Jesus. And that's why, he, again, he demonstrates his authority and his power over darkness, over this age. Because <clears throat> he immediately shuts them up. And he casts them out and he shuts them up. And so we see here in these scenes the reactions that come to Jesus Christ. From the religious leaders, they look to destroy him because he's a threat to the structure they have built. He's a threat to the power they have amassed. He's a threat to their own idea of their holiness. Jesus comes in and he, he wipes that low. The crowds, they're not against him like that, but they're not coming to him in faith. As Adam has mentioned in the last few sermons, we understand faith versus knowledge. They, they've heard that Jesus has his power and authority. There's even an assent. They, they believe, yeah, it's true, he has it. But they're not coming and casting themselves at his feet and resting and relying upon him by faith. They just want something from him. Then you have the demons who, again, confess his name, but not out of loyalty out of terror because they stand for everything opposite of what our God stands for. They love darkness, not light. And so in all of these, we see they're getting the identity of God wrong. Why he came? Did he come to destroy them? Did he come to overthrow them? Did he come? What is his purpose is coming? And we see he came as a savior to save sinners. He's already announced that. Not for the righteous, but for the sinner to save them. And while they think they have it figured out that he's a threat to them, in fact, he is their only hope of salvation. So again, all of this clamoring, and you come to verse 13, and again, Jesus withdraws. He goes up to the mountain. <clears throat> R. Kent Hughes, he's a pastor, maybe you've heard of him in... Uh, I don't know if he's still at College Church. He was for a long time in Wheaton area. And he's a, a really good speaker. He's much more creative and clever in his titles. Maybe you'll say cheesy, but he did this overview uh, of Jesus and his interaction with crowds, and he entitled a sermon, Jesus Pressured Jesus. You know the song, Tis So Sweet? And it has the Jesus Precious Jesus in there, that line. Anyways, he took that line and he cleverly, or that's cheesy, changed it from precious to pressured. Jesus pressured Jesus. But what he does in there was, it was impactful for me as I looked at it this week, is highlights just the humanity of Jesus, that he was true man. And we sometimes can think and elevate him and think like, oh, he was unfazed by any of that. But no, in, in weakness, in humanity, he experienced the pressure, the stress, the overwhelming expectation of him, while at the same time, people plotting to kill him. 
and the stress and the pressure that that was and what, how Jesus reacts. And he, he reacts in a couple different ways. It becomes, I think, an example for us, even as we in our lives can feel just pressure and stress and burden down. I guess three ways. First is he continues to serve. He doesn't make that as a, a reason that he can just escape everyone because he's feeling pressure. He continues to put the needs of others above his own. And yet there are times and there are moments when he does withdraw. He just, it's good for him. He needs to be alone with his father. I think that's a helpful pattern for us when we feel that burden and pressure and stress. One is that we don't become selfish and only centered upon ourselves but also know there are moments we just need to be alone with God to organize and reorient our thoughts around his word and his truth. But after those two things, then he calls people to him. And we'll see he does that there. Jesus in his true humanity needed that companionship. And with the disciples, he has it. It's, it's men that he loves, he cares about women in the wider circle of his disciples who he loves and he cares about, who he rejoices in their victory and he grieves at their sin and he cares for them and they care for him. And you see all three of those sort of emerge that in our stress, in our burdens, when we feel the weight that we don't just jet one way or the other and react wrong, that we continue to try to serve others. But no, like we need those moments to re-energize ourselves with the Lord. But we also need others. We need that companionship. We need that encouragement. And so we see that in the humanity of Jesus. And then we begin to get a glimpse of what true discipleship looks like. We've seen the reactions to Jesus, and now we'll look at the true discipleship. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's been calling people to follow him. We've, we've seen a few examples of that earlier in Mark with the fishermen, with Matthew, the, the tax collector, as he's called them to follow him, and they have followed him. <clears throat> it seems that he has gathered a bit more of a following because some of these we'll read about later in Scripture. You, Mary Magdalene is, is part of that group. Later in church history, we count Paul and Barnabas as part of that group. But disciples whom he has called, but it's out of this group of disciples then that he calls specific ones. He calls 12 to himself. It's interesting, he does so. He goes to the mountain, and it is from the mountain that he is going to call these people to himself, bringing back to mind Old Testament passages of God communicating and, and relieving and being gracious to his people, especially as we think of Mount Sinai. And here Jesus continuing to relieve his people, continuing to call his people, to provide for him. He goes to the mountain. And look how it says there, and he called to him those whom he desired. He called those whom he desired. He called out those whom he willed. We have looked at this a couple times already, but the rabbis of the day, they were chosen by the followers. The followers decided, which rabbi do I like? Okay, uh, that'll be my guy. I'll follow him. And if I disappoint me, then I'll go find another one. With Jesus, it's not that way. When Jesus is followed, it's because he calls 
followers unto himself. He calls the disciples unto himself. He speaks with authority and he calls those he desires unto himself. And what is the response? They come to him. We see in the initiative of of disciple making, it is Jesus who takes that initiative. It is Jesus who calls disciples. It is Jesus who makes disciples. We're not doing Jesus some sort of favor by deciding, ah, he'll be our teacher. He is graciously calling sinners, unworthy sinners, reaching out and drawing us to himself to be his disciples. That is an incredible grace and a blessing. It is not us doing a solid for Jesus, but it is him condescending and calling in his sovereign grace unto himself. Jesus calls and they come to him. And with Jesus, unlike the rabbis that will take them to the Torah and lead them through other things, Jesus is the sole subject of his disciple study. They come to him, they learn from him, they follow him, they hear his word. He is their goal. He is their end. Same is true for us as he would call us as disciples unto himself. It's not in order for us to get something. He calls us to discipleship in order that we might know him, that we might be with him. He is the gift. He is the sole subject of their discipleship. To drive the point even further in verse 14 it says and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles he appointed 12 it's interesting the word there for appointed is really the word created or made in fact in the Septuagint the Greek version of the Old Testament the same word is used in Genesis 1.1 as is used here in Mark 3.14 for in the beginning he created. Here we, we hear it, that he created these 12. He is forming them. He's calling them out. He is forming them. He is making them something. He is making them his disciples. Really, he is going to make them his church. He's calling followers together and he's going to make them his church. And as we are told in Corinthians, upon the foundation of these prophets and apostles that the whole church is built. And so he takes the initiative. He calls them. He makes them into something. He makes them into a body. He creates a body out of them. And now they are the twelve. And he calls them in order to do two things. And here we see the two Two calls of discipleship, which we still share in today. So that they might, one, verse 14, so that they might be with him and he might send them out. He calls them to be with him and he calls them to send them out. The two calls of discipleship, that we would be with Christ, that we would follow him, that we would learn at his feet, that we would be, that we would dwell with him. To be mastered by him. To give ourselves to him. In order that he might send us out. The Lord is still establishing his church in that way. Calling people to be with him. That we would gather. That we would understand. That we would give ourselves to the way we know our God. Through his word. 
through prayer, through fellowship with one another, through the table, these ways that we come to be with our God. And then he sends us out on his mission, that we adopt his mission as salt and light, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, because that was his mission. And so he draws the 12 and he creates something. He's making something out of them. That is his church. And he is telling them, be with me. Dwell with me. I am the sole subject of what you're going after. And then I'm going to send you out. And he sends them out to preach. We do see specifically with the apostles here, he sends them out to preach. But also to have authority and to cast out demons. Again, this unique time, this unique moment in the the development of the church as Jesus Christ is here and he is establishing this church and the gates of hell raging against it and he endows them with something unique for them of, of these signs and wonders and miracles that accompany their message of the gospel to give it a measure of authority and authentication that it needs at that moment and so they go forward and we'll see that Continuing sharing in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then he names the apostles. We won't go through every name here. Each of the gospel writers does this. They all start with Peter, and then after that it changes a little bit. Some give a little commentary, some give less in a different order. He names them because they are significant. I mean, along with the prophets. Corinthians tells us the apostles and the prophets serve as the foundation on which the church is built. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And yet they're significant and yet the names come, the names go, and the names change. And the Lord is building and creating his church largely through a lot of unknown, unnamed, unremembered people who are invited graciously into discipleship, who get to dwell with God and who are sent out and who share in his kingdom now and in the kingdom to come. And so in working through that, we see these men, but we realize it is the Lord that is doing this work. A couple other observations about the men. None of them are religious leaders of the day. They come from real diverse kind of common backgrounds there's fishermen there's tax collectors they're diverse in the sense you think you have Simon Peter he's a zealot he's you know nationalistic pride big time and then you have Matthew who's turned on his own people as a tax collector and is made wealthy off the back of the Jewish people by colluding with the Roman tax system I mean what brings people like that together God does through the person of Jesus Christ as he's called them. And then it's interesting that he includes Judas Iscariot. <clears throat> I mean, he should, he should do, but I would think, okay, this is some 30 years after the betrayal and death of Jesus. You know he knows the story. Mark was heavily influenced as kind of like a, a secretary almost to the Apostle Peter. So he would have heard those things firsthand from Peter. I would be tempted to just leave Judas off the list if I'm writing it 30 some years later. 
he doesn't, and I think it does a couple things. One, it, again, just lends credibility to the histor- historicity of the scripture and all of its, you know, it, it paints the picture as it was for us. And so we see some of that <clears throat> credibility come through. But it also paints for us the proper picture of understanding the makeup of the disciples, of the people of God, that the church now, just as it was even in its very beginning, was never a holy, sinless, pure, perfect group of people. It's not that we understand ourselves to be the only ones who have got it right. There's no sin in here, it's just out there. As if the Pharisees and the crowds and the, the demon possessed, all the bad stuff is with them, all the good stuff is with us. No, we see there's even impurity. We see within the church there are tares and there are wheat and there will be until the Lord does his work. Now in the invisible church known to God, there you have a, a people redeemed by his grace. But as we continue in this church, it keeps us humble and it allows us to not be devastated when we look around and we see why are so many churches that seems to get wrecked with sin and hypocrisy and <clears throat> scandal of some sort. It feels like you're, you're hearing about that and reading it all the time. And it helps your faith not be wrecked because you understand that in this age... The church is made up of sinners, and you're going to see that. And it keeps us humble that, yes, there's sin and there's hypocrisy. Thankfully, to this point, the Lord has protected us graciously from any you know, huge scandal. But that's because of God and His grace, not because we, we've reached somewhere and we can now stand on our own. Even as disciples called by God, rely on Him, we need to rely on Him daily. And then finally, we see the significance of the 12. It's the 12. <clears throat> Each of the gospel writers, as we said, there's some variety in the way they talk about the disciples, even the name they choose to use. Some have multiple names that you'll see used. But each of them speak of the 12 apostles. In fact, Mark, from this point out, will talk about the 12. And for us, I mean, we're not big numerologists or anything, but you clearly see the 12. He's looking back at the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes, people that God called to himself as he established his people in the Old Testament, a covenant made with Abraham, and he established his people there in that Old Testament. And we, we talked about this in Sunday school. See, the people arranged themselves around God, even as they traveled through the wilderness. The, the tabernacle, the tent was set up in the center, and all of the 12 tribes then arranged themselves, three, 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 around God with him as centered. The people of God centered around God in his presence. And God was building his people through these 12 tribes. And now we see sort of a symmetry and a continuation here with the 12 apostles that God is going to continue to build his people and it will be centered around Jesus Christ. He calls them to himself. He makes them something. And he's going to send them out and the church is going to be built upon them. Jesus is clearly marking that symmetry. So for the Gentiles, it would be a reminder that, again, 
Sunday school. You should have come this morning. Lots of stuff in Sunday school. From John 4, salvation is from the Jews. The Gentiles are remembering that. That is to say, the only Savior proclaimed to the world is the one who was promised, proclaimed for, prepared for in Abraham. The fulfillment of the covenant made with David. The only Savior of the world comes from that lineage. God chose to work his redemption through Abraham and through the Jewish people and through the covenants made with them. That is the one Savior of the world. For the Jews, likewise, the 12 is a reminder that Israel only fulfills its destiny in the fellowship and the service of Jesus. To be a child of Abraham is to have faith in Jesus Christ, the promised seed. And so we see Jesus now as he calls his disciples. He goes to the mountaintop. He calls the twelve. He calls our mind back to the work he has done with his people. And now he guarantees for us, this is the foundation upon which I will build my church. Jesus Christ being its head. Jesus Christ being its aim, its goal. Jesus Christ being the one we follow. Jesus Christ being his chief cornerstone. That's true discipleship. To be called by God to be with him, to be with Jesus, to be sent out from him as the Lord builds his church among us by his sovereign grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we think about the reactions to Jesus Lord, we don't want to be folks who are just in the crowd, that are just fascinated, interested, would love to get something from you, but that's it. Lord, there's no saving faith. There's no persevering faith there. Lord, we don't want to be ones who are religious, but don't want you to have a claim on our life. We, We want religion, but we want it to fit in a specific area that helps us and doesn't stop us from advancing in areas we want to move on in life. We don't want to be that. Lord, we definitely don't want to be those who love darkness. And therefore, we recognize the claim you're making, but we just choose darkness over it. Lord, help us as we hear your call to be true disciples who indeed follow you that we would continually come to you, dwell with you, be with you in your word. We'd be students of your word. We'd give ourselves to it. We'd be prayerful. We would grow that, that relationship, Lord, that we have with you through prayer. Lord, in fellowship with the people of God, that we would understand that call to discipleship. And then we would hear the second call, Lord, to be sent out to be ambassadors for you proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom to be salt and light to those around us Lord not Sunday only disciples Lord but disciples of you in the workplace and in our schools with our families with our friends Lord we rejoice that you have called a people and you are saving a people for yourself 
Lord, we thank you that the promise is that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, we thank you that it's upon that foundation of your grace. Lord, that even Redeemer now is being built continually by your grace. Lord, we would ask if there's one here today who's feeling that call to follow, Lord, that you would graciously work in the hearts and lives. People would respond in faith to you. I'll give you just a moment there quietly. Think through the word proclaimed.